Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and tonight we'll consider verses 9 through 12. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is included in, in tonight's lesson in verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's, let's begin reading with verse 3 for context. Paul says, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline, or perhaps sound judgment or self-control. In verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now in verse 9, Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. These verses, as you might can see, are, are full of theology, very serious theology. And remember, before we can apply theology, we must know theology. Some, in fact too many, want to apply without knowing. You hear things like, don't bother me with that. I don't care about doctrinal disputes I just want to love Jesus. Well, maybe. And I, and I hope that's true, but, but it's difficult to know and appreciate someone you, to, to love rather, someone that are, you, you really don't know. I don't particularly care for hockey. And the reason I don't care for hockey is because I don't understand hockey. You know, I don't know what the rules are. I know, I know what the ultimate objective is, is to put the puck into the net. But the way they play it, that some of the times they'll call a penalty on somebody, I have no clue. As to, as to what they're doing. Now, I enjoy football because not only do I know all the rules of football, I played football, I, I know the strategies that are concerned with it, and so I enjoy that a whole lot more than I do hockey, but for some people, it's, it's the other way around. Some of you don't like either one of them, and that's okay, too. Uh, but the more you know about something, the more you can appreciate it. Not too long ago, Cindy and I went to Chicago for just a couple of days, and we, we flew in, we, we took the train, looked, walked downtown into the hotel, Noticed some really interesting buildings. But it wasn't until the next day or the day after that we took an architectural tour where people explained to us the history behind the buildings and something about the architects and why this particular building was built that way or faces this way or just a little taller than the other one. And it made so much more sense. And now I love Chicago's architecture a whole lot more. If you would have just told me, go look at the buildings and enjoy the architecture, I could have done it, but it wouldn't have been as rich as it should have been with a, with a greater understanding of exactly what had gone on there. So, so it is with theology and the application of theology. Yeah, it's great that you want to love Jesus. 
the, the Jesus freaks of the 70s and the 60s wanted to love Jesus too, but they didn't know anything about him. And so the Jesus that they loved was a Jesus of their own imagination, of their own making, of their own manufacture. The Jesus of their, uh, the, the Jesus was, that was the object of their affection was, was in a sense an idol. It wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. So if we're to understand and love the Jesus of the Bible, we've got to understand the Bible. We've got to understand theology. The result of the operation of divine power within believers, that's what we learned in verse 7, is characterized here in these verses according to its nature and its purpose. Its nature, uh, the, the, the fact that we've been saved, and its purpose, the phrase, and called us with a holy calling. Now, now in terms of the nature of this power, God has delivered us from the greatest of all evils and has placed us in possession of of the greatest of all blessings. He has rescued us from a position of eternal condemnation and placed us in an irrevocable position of eternal blessing. And he does that by grace through faith. Once again, I'd like for you to call that great fifth chapter of Romans. The book of Romans is perhaps the deepest theology in all of Scripture. And the fifth chapter of Romans, particularly verses 12 through 21, has been considered to be perhaps the deepest theology and the deepest letter of all of Scripture. In this, among other things, Paul introduces two headships. First, the headship of the one man, Adam, who disobeyed and death came into the world. And then the second headship that's presented there is the headship of Jesus Christ, the other one man in that passage, one man who obeyed and life comes into the picture. And the reality is that we're all, right here in this room, right now, we're all under one or the other of those representative headships. I'm saying, positionally, we're all under one or the other of those headships. We're all born under the Adamic headship, and the headship that is associated with death. But by grace through faith, we have come to be under the headship of Jesus Christ and the headship of life. All who are associated with Adam die. I'm not talking about just physical death now. I'm talking about something that happens aim after physical death. It's a point for all of us, we're going to die once. But then after that, what happens? After that, what happens? Funerals are interesting times for me. Because sometimes I see folks that don't take life very seriously, just for a few moments, just for a few moments, realize that one day they're going to be in the same situation as the person that we're remembering at that particular time. Perhaps the most striking example of that attention-getting aspect was a few years back, actually several years back now, a friend of mine called me, and his girlfriend's brother had died. as a very young man, probably about 25 years old. Uh, the man had died by playing Russian roulette and had killed himself. And so I went down to the funeral home, and um, it, was a, it was a rough crowd. I went down the night before. I didn't realize I was going to speak that night before, but I guess it was in their tradition that someone do a service the night before and the next morning as well for the formal service. But as I looked out over the crowd, I, I saw a lot of people that were, that were fairly hardened. You might can imagine that the type of peers that would play Russian roulette were, were fairly rough characters. But I saw something in their eyes, something just, just in the back of their eyes that told me that this was the time. And I got their attention. And regardless of the fact that they were fairly rough characters, I laid it on them. 
And I told him, I said, this might be the only time all year you really consider death. Now, you may not mind taking someone else's life. And for some of them, it looked like they didn't mind taking someone else's life. Or perhaps even had taken someone else's life. I said, you may not mind taking somebody else's life, but one of these days, you're going to be in this position. And then what's it going to be like for you at that point? Because we're all going to die. We're all going to leave this earth. If, if history has taught us anything, it's that nobody lives here permanently. So what, what about that? It's, it seems to me that that's philosophy's ultimate question. Depends on the philosopher that you ask. Some, some philosopher's ultimate question is about the existence of evil. I don't really have a problem at all with the existence of evil. I understand that. I understand how a good God could allow evil to exist. But I'll tell you what, the problem that philosophers struggle with is what happens to me after I die? Do I just cease to exist? And if I do, if I just cease to exist after I die, that should affect how I live now. For i got to tell you, if I cease to exist after I die, there's some people going to get run over on the freeway tomorrow. If that, if that was for sure, there, there would be nothing stopping me from being a totally immoral person. You see, if, if, there is a, if there's no purpose out there, if there's no God above that's giving purpose to our life, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die. Well, but there is. See, you don't have to stay under the Adamic headship that's associated with death by grace through faith, not by any works that we could do. And that's what this passage says. Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. So you can relax. You don't ever have to try to be good enough to get to heaven. You couldn't do it on your best day anyway. He saved us. What he did, he took us from that old position in Adam and placed us into a new position in Jesus Christ. An irrevocable <laughs> position, by the way. Irrevocable position. I mean, you can't lose it. We sometimes act like we're under the Adamic headship. We do every time we sin. We act like we're under the old headship. But we're not. So Paul says, speaking of God and the power of God who saved us, and he called us with a holy calling. God's desire is for everybody to be saved. That's his stated desire. And he issues, as a result of that desire, a general salvation call to everyone. There is a general call to salvation for everyone that has ever been born. But while it is the stated, unambiguous desire of God for all to be saved, all are not saved. So we might say that while it is the desire of God that all be saved, it is the decree of God that all will not be saved. I hope you see the subtle but very important distinction. It's the desire of God that all be saved, but it is the decree of God that all not be saved. Here, I think, is the great point of tension in the redeemed man's attempt to understand how the sovereignty of God and the free will of man can coexist. Some stress sovereignty to the point of making free will decisions of men, not free will decisions at all. And the offer of salvation turns out to be a farce. We are called to accept Christ, to place our faith in him for salvation, but according to that view, we really don't do that. God does it. Faith is not a decision, but rather a gift that God bestows on some and not others. For hold, those who hold this view, God, in an arbitrary way, in, in the extreme form of the view, chooses some to whom he will give faith and leaves in just condemnation everyone else. And if that's your view, that's okay. Many people share it. But what do you do with the stated desire that God desires all men 
to be saved. What do you do with that if God is arbitrary? For you see, if God was arbitrary and his desire is that all men to be saved, we have to ask ourselves the question, why are not all saved? I know this is heavy theology, but, but try to follow it with me. Because this, this, is, this is right straight from this passage here tonight. What does it mean he called us with a, according to his own purpose? If it's his desire for us all to be saved, but yet we're not all saved, then what in the world is his purpose? Sometimes people try to get around this by saying in 1 Timothy 2.4 that all men doesn't mean all men there. It just means all categories of men. But the exegetical gymnastics that have to be performed to get to that position are quite frankly embarrassing, particularly for people who try to claim the high ground intellectually and theologically. It is frankly embarrassing. In fact, the context of that passage, the first all men in that passage, refers to Nero, who certainly wasn't someone who was saved. Actually, I flatly reject the idea that God is arbitrary in choosing who will be saved. If he was, then all would be saved. His desire would be equivalent to the decree. But here's the catch. While God issues a general call to all, a more specific call is in view here. This holy calling. This passage speaks of a holy call, or if some have put it, an effective gospel call. Norm Geisler says it this way, God calls or draws in accordance with the free will of man, not in opposition to it. He calls the willing. The holy call that is mentioned here is an irresistible call of God on the willing. God does not force you against your will to love him. He enables you to love him, but he doesn't force you against your will to do so. So if you're here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, i got to tell you, God's not going to make you do it. It's your decision. It's up to you. I'm not going to make you do it either. I couldn't on my best day. I can tell you all about it. I can, I can, I can try to do my best to let you know that someday, and it may not be too, too long from now, it's going to be a huge issue for you. Someday you're going to be laying on that deathbed, and you're going to have a choice to make. You're going to, you're going to think, where am I going to wake up tomorrow? Or am I going to wake up tomorrow? Or is this just the last few moments of my life? I can't imagine living like that. I can't imagine living today like that, much less on my deathbed that way. To think, well, I'm going to take a couple more breaths and then I'm going to cease to be, and I'll never realize that I ever was. I'll never have a thought about who I was. It'll be as though I had never existed. Just darkness. And then for you, there won't even be darkness in that sense, if that's your philosophy. But the problem is there's going to be, there's going to be some illumination. Um, it won't be utterly dark. So God is going to issue a general call, and right now he's issuing a general call to you if you've never trusted Jesus Christ. Perhaps he's doing that even right now. Perhaps in the back of your mind you're thinking, well, this, this fellow is, is full of bull as a Christmas goose. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's your view. But I'll tell you what, you're not going to think that. You're not going to think it when the time comes. One thing's for certain, though, that this call of God, our association with Christ and salvation, is not based upon our works, plural, works, plural, but according to his own purpose or his decree and his grace. Over and over again, Paul makes it clear that salvation is by grace through faith, just simply trusting Jesus Christ, not a result of our own works. And this grace is and was part of God's purpose from, the, from before time, even, even before time began, 
But he's revealed this grace in its fullest sense in Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that there was no grace in the Old Testament. That's a, that's a misunderstanding of what some things that the, the Apostle John said. It, it, there had to be grace in the Old Testament or no one would have been saved in the Old Testament. And grace is a gift that God gives to you that you don't deserve. None of us deserve to live with God forever. I don't, you don't, none of us do. But God graciously, as a gift, has made that offer to us. Just simply by faith we can accept that offer and live with him in utter joy and bliss forever and ever. In connection with his first coming, Jesus Christ utterly defeated, put out of commission, uh, rendered ineffective death. As a result of Christ's atonement, the believer has no problem with eternal death ever again. It's not, not an issue anymore for us. That's in connection with his first coming. Now, in, in connection with his second coming, when he pours out his wrath upon all mankind, I'll defer that to Ronald Allen this weekend. That's what he's going to be talking about, the great and terrible day of the Lord. A day of the Lord that begins with incredible judgment and the wrath of God being poured out upon mankind. But that ends. It, that ends with that same warrior king putting back on the robes of a shepherd. The day that begins in wrath ends in blessing. It's something to look forward to for this weekend, but I'll let him talk about those issues. So, who saved This is talking about God. Who saved us and called us <coughs> with a holy calling. Again, there's two kinds of calling. There's a general calling to all mankind, and then there's a more specific holy calling to those that he pulls into his family. And he pulls in, in consistently and in accordance with one's faith. One's free will, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. Now, I hope you see why I made the distinction between his purpose or his decree and his desire. It's his desire to call all, to, to pull everyone in, but he won't do that against your will. He's a gentleman in that sense. So his purpose is to call only those who exercise faith. In verse 11, or rather verse 10, but, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now in verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. This was Paul's mission. He knew what his purpose was, and he didn't get distracted with regard to his purpose. We all have a different reason for being here, all part of God's plan. But Paul says here that he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Reflecting on the good news, which proclaims the wonderful blessing and invites men to receive it by faith, Paul understands what it is that was his role in the Christian community. This is the same thing that he's expressed back in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, 7. As a herald, Paul must announce and loudly proclaim the gospel, the good news. That's bad news that we're born under that Adamic headship and headed to hell. That's bad news. It really is. Terrible news. But the good news is that God did something about it. And by grace through faith, you don't have to go to hell. You can go straight to heaven when you die. But i got to tell you, if you reject God, don't expect him to accept you. If you reject God, don't expect him to accept you. 
by C.S. Lewis, but it is people are in hell because of their own desire to be there. Period. You choose. It's as if all your life, it's as if all your life, instead of saying, God, your will be done, at the end God has to say, Son, your will be done. So as a preacher, he must proclaim loudly and boldly the gospel. As an apostle, he must say and do nothing except that which has been commanded him to say and do. Paul wasn't a philosopher in that sense. It made it easier. He could go discuss philosophy with the philosophers on Mars Hill. He understood philosophy, but he was just given charge to preach that which was given him. He didn't have to come up with a new philosophy. I'm kind of glad he didn't, and I'm glad I don't either. And as a teacher, he must impart carefully and instruct carefully the things pertaining to salvation and the glory of God. He must admonish unto faith and obedience those under his care. And for these tasks, he has been appointed or he has been divinely commissioned. And now one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, verse 12, For this reason also I suffer these things. When Paul says this, this is no light statement. Paul has been stoned. He has been beaten and left for dead numerous times. By the time he writes this, he's already been in prison once. He's been in jail a couple of times. Everywhere he goes, people have have, uh, followed him up by ridiculing him. They say, Paul, he's a great guy, but... Yeah, you know, I knew him back in Jerusalem in, in the early days. Very intelligent fellow, but... He was, he was said to be an enemy of the very Jewish people that he was trying so desperately to get to accept the gospel. When he says, for this reason I suffer, he's not talking about losing the remote control. He's not talking about watching the Super Bowl on a regular TV rather than HD. He's not talking about having to, having to, to wash the dishes by hand in, instead of in a dishwasher. That's not the kind of suffering that he's talking about. He's not, he's not talking about suffering through having to sit through a Bible class in a room that's 73 instead of 72. That's not the kind of suffering he's talking about. He's talking about real suffering. And the actual kind of suffering that he's talking about will end up in his own death. In fact, for all the apostles, as, as best as we can tell from church tradition, early church history, every one of them died for their faith. This is real suffering. And these are his final words. He's not pulling any punches. I love people's final words. I love to study them. Perhaps the the final words that I appreciate more than anyone else's are the the words of Thomas Jonathan Jackson, Stonewall Jackson. Most of you know he was shot by his own men, lost an arm. He didn't die right away. Actually, there was time for his wife to get there. And on on the morning of his death, the doctors had told Mrs. Jackson that he wouldn't make it throughout the day she went in and told him she said doctor I'll, I'll i'll be need to be the one to tell him that so she went in there she kind of woke him and he greeted her as he always did and uh she said well thomas she didn't call him stonewall said thomas the the doctor has told me that that before this day is over you'll be in heaven with the lord and he said what day is this and she said well it's a sunday thomas and he said good always wanted to die on the Lord's day. Then he passed back out for a while, for several hours, and woke back up again. And uh, the last thing he said before he, he passed away was, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. He passed out again and then died shortly thereafter. I love that, his last words. 
And he did. He crossed over that river shortly thereafter. Well, these are Paul's final words. For this reason also I suffer these things. All the things that are mentioned, for example, in First and Second Corinthians, particularly Second Corinthians, all the things that he had suffered, they were trivial to him in comparison to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, and eternity is so long. Wouldn't you like to have been one that prayed for the Apostle Paul's ministry? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to have been one that gave a dollar to, to his trip to Corinth or to Rome or to Ephesus? Oh, yeah. This was a man who was faithful. Not a man who was perfect. Not a man who needs to be deified or worshipped in any way. But a man that we can certainly imitate. In fact, he tells us in one place to do just that. Not because of anything that he is, but because he's imitating Jesus Christ himself. And I love this. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Now, he's already told Timothy a couple different times, don't be ashamed. Look back at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And this doesn't mean that Timothy was ashamed. But Paul is encouraging, don't ever get that way. You might be ashamed of Jesus Christ if you were a fool in, in the sense that here, here, he almost looked like a failed prophet. Actually, actually, he was a crucified prophet. That's what they did to false prophets was they crucified him. It, it might look like he, he had failed in his mission, but he didn't. You might be ashamed of Paul, Timothy would say. You might be ashamed of even me because I'm in prison right now. People may think I'm a criminal. I'm not a criminal. So he tells Timothy, don't be ashamed. And now he says, I'm not ashamed. Now, remember where he is? He is not, in, he's not under house arrest this time. He is in the Mamertine dungeon. Most likely with the only light coming from the light up above him. And in the dark, I'm not going to tell you how grotesque it most likely was in there. In a dark, dreary, damp, smelly dungeon. And he says, I'm not ashamed. And I suffer these things because of Jesus Christ. Oh, then he says it. These, these, these amongst my most favorite words in Scripture. I know in whom I have believed. Now listen, you're going to get down to the end one of these days. One of these days you're going to get down to the end of it all, or someone that you love is going to get right down to the end. And, and then that's going to be a moment of critical faith for you. And you may as well go through it right this minute. Do you know in whom you've believed? Do you know in whom you've entrusted your very soul? I've entrusted mine to Jesus of Nazareth because he's earned it. No serious historian questions the historicity of Jesus Christ. So he's not just a figment of someone's imagination. Hercules, yes, may very well have been a, a figment of someone's imagination. Certainly what he did was a figment of someone's imagination. But not Jesus Christ. Very real person. He lived he said he was the Messiah. He proved he was the Messiah by virtue of not just his words, but his work. And he was resurrected on the third day. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be perfectly upfront with you. If he wasn't resurrected on the third day, I'm not here today. Because I wouldn't bother being in the ministry if all we were worshiping was one more dead prophet who might have done some tricks here and there, but never proved that he was who he said he was. But Jesus proved he was who he said he was. And he was witnessed not only by his close friends, but over 500 different people who were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Paul says, go check it out with them. The disciples make this incredible change from a bunch of shriveling cowards to, to, to some of the most bold people who have ever lived. The Apostle Paul makes a transformation from one who hates Christians and wants to kill them and arrest them to one who will die for Jesus Christ. I know in whom I have believed. Paul knew in whom he had believed. I hope you know in whom you have believed. Because it's going to become critically important to you one day when either you or someone you love desperately is taking their last few breaths. You're going to be trusting something or someone. 
It's either going to be really yourself or God. I know in whom I believe, and I am convinced, as Paul says, that he is able. He is perfectly able to guard that which I have entrusted to him. You know what you've entrusted to him? The most precious thing that you possess, and that's your very soul, your very life, until that day. That day, that great and glorious day, when we breathe our last breath of this semi-polluted air, and take that first breath of air that we won't hardly we won't hardly recognize it as being air. It'll be so celestial and so fragrant. Until that day, I know that He can guard my soul. I've entrusted my soul to Him, and so have you. I know you have. The, 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 the overwhelming majority of you in here tonight have already entrusted your soul to Jesus Christ. I think you've put your faith in the right place. There is this movement today to have faith in faith. It's kind of a feel-good thing. People on TV, people in the movies, they really don't mind talking about faith. Just have a little bit more faith. Just need a little bit more faith. You know what? You don't just need a little bit more faith. You need a little bit more faith in the right object. You see, that's the point. Paul knows the object of his faith. Some of you have heard this story before. Some of you haven't, but this is one of my clothes with the night because it's so appropriate. Back in the year 2000, August of the year 2000, I was in Kazakhstan, and we were having a pastor's conference there. And we ate outside each day. It was a really neat thing that was under these sheds, this, this kind of slight little roof that would guard us from the sun. The, the, the cook there was a phenomenal cook. She cooked in this huge big pot outside. I didn't want to look and see what she was putting in it. I'm a little too picky for that, but I was hungry enough, so I ate it anyway. They made this special tea for us each day. There was, a, there was a spigot out in the middle of the courtyard there that said in Kazakh, do not drink this water. This, this water was polluted by the sewage system underneath, but they used it to kind of water things with. They would wash the pots and pans with that water, though. So I knew I was going to pay for it when I got home, but I loved the meals. It, I just loved the, the... They were made with such love. You couldn't turn it down. Now, the sheep's head that I had to eat later, I did... Almost turned that down, but he made part of that. But, but I'll never forget this one day. We had pastors from five different countries there. I forgot which country this man was from. Maybe Uzbekistan. But he was arguing with Jim Myers and myself about something I had said in the class that day. And this was it, this very thing right here. That it's not so much faith, but it's the object of your faith. You can have all the faith in the world in the wrong object, and it doesn't work. I had said that that morning. He was saying that's not true. What's true is, is it's more important your faith than the object. So we were talking to him about this through a translator. And at that very moment, I'm not kidding you, it's one of the most pieces of, uh, greatest pieces of divine irony I've ever seen. He takes a chair. He's on the other side of the table. He takes a chair and sits down. And it was kind of a rickety chair. The chair collapsed underneath him. He sprawled all over the dirt. And everybody stopped and looked. I looked at Jim because I'm thinking, we're never going to get a chance better than this to make a yeah. point. And we said through the translator, look, you had every confidence in that chair that was going to hold you up, but you placed your faith in the wrong object. You had a lot of faith, but the wrong object. Now listen, a lot of people out there have a lot of faith, but it's in the wrong objects, usually in yourself. And Paul says here, you're not saved by our own works. We're saved by Jesus Christ. And I know almost all of you know that. But it helps to remember that. And it helps to remember that when you get down to either your own death or someone that you love, that they're not going to heaven because of how good they were. They can never get there if that was the case. They're going to heaven because of who they believed, who they have trusted. I know in whom I have believed. 
And I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Heavenly Father, we are so appreciative that you've made salvation available to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I know he's a worthy object. I know you were powerful enough. He is powerful enough to save us. If we'll just place our faith in him. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that has not done that, that, oh, this might be the night that they do it. The night that they finally set aside all the things that have been keeping them from doing so. And finally just humbly say, Father, I know I can't save myself. And I know I need salvation desperately. I now place my faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work tonight desperately on anyone here who needs it. And for those who have already trusted Jesus Christ, I pray that now as we go forth from this place, we'll go with a different sense of confidence. Confidence in in that no matter what the circumstances of life are, no matter what the next few days or the next few years throw at us, that we know in whom we've believed, and we know when this thing's all over with where we're going to be because of him, not because of us. I thank you that we have such a magnificent Savior, and it's in his name that we'll ask all of this. Amen.